In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's nothing like being called a brood of vipers the first thing on a Sunday morning to get you in the Christmas spirit, is there? I mean, come on, John the Baptist. Isn't this the time of year when we're supposed to be joyfully expecting the birth of Jesus? Doesn't that pink candle on the Advent wreath mean that today is Gaudete Sunday, Rejoice Sunday? Wasn't this past week filled with so many joyful events, like lessons and carols and Sarah's ordination to the priesthood, and a pretty awesome football game yesterday, if I do say so myself? So why then all this talk this morning about axes and fire? How is this supposed to help us to rejoice? How is all this supposed to make us feel warm and fuzzy while we finish all of our Christmas shopping and sip our peppermint mochas? Everywhere we look, there are the sights and the sounds of Christmas. And don't get me wrong, this is my favorite time of the year. I love the lights, the smells, the feelings of love and joy that permeate the air right now. But I also understand that today is only December the 12th, and we still have two more weeks to go before we officially celebrate the Incarnation at Christmas. I hope I can still be in the Christmas spirit by the time it actually does come around. But I also understand it can be easy to get burnt out. When Jeannie and I went to one of the big home improvement stores just a few days ago, we were surprised to see that most of the Christmas decorations had already been taken down and that they're literally beginning to set up hammocks and other springtime displays. Seems like everything in our world today keeps moving faster and faster. But once again, this season of Advent, these four weeks we see slowly and deliberately melting away on that Advent wreath, they force us to slow down. And as John the Baptist reminds us this morning, there is actually still plenty of work for us to do before that great and glorious day of Christ's advent comes. Now, I am a big fan of John the Baptist. Not only does he have one of the most important jobs in the New Testament, proclaiming the coming Messiah, but he does it with such style. I mean, he wears those camel hair outfits, he eats locusts and wild honey, and especially when it comes to passages like this, I imagine he's speaking wildly with his arms waving and pacing around. But the message he gave was deadly serious, and his choice of words certainly gets the point across. You brood of vipers, John says, speaking to the crowds who had flocked to him to be baptized in the Jordan River. Who warned you of, to flee from the wrath to come? For you see, the Israelites who had long awaited the Messiah to come expected a great and powerful warrior king to come to the earth and vanquish evil in mighty battles. This was the imagery given 
by many of the prophets, including what we hear from Zephaniah this morning. According to them, Israel was the chosen people. And those religious leaders of that day rested all their laurels and status on this idea of their birthright salvation. All they had to do, they thought, was just to go through the motions of being baptized in the river, and they would be good in God's eyes. In their mind, they were entitled to God's salvation. But John has a little different opinion on this matter. It doesn't matter, John says, if you're an Israelite, if you call yourself a descendant of Abraham. You see these rocks? God can make these rocks into descendants of Abraham if God really wanted to. It's no longer, he says, about simply who you are or where you came from, but how you're living your life right now and to what end that is really important. And to further illustrate this point, Luke tells us how three different groups ask him the same question that we might ask today. What then should we do? The first comes from the gathered crowd, those religious Israelites who had the mentality that they were automatically good with God. The second from the tax collectors, the representatives of the government who were notorious for swindling and extracting money from the citizens. And finally, the soldiers, the Roman Gentiles who oftentimes were able to abuse their position of authority to exploit the less powerful. Three different groups of people, three different statuses in society, Jews and Gentiles, each one just as deserving of God's salvation as the next. For nothing in John's responses to their question, what should we do, ever mentioned anything about temple sacrifice or checking one's ancestry line back to Abraham. In John's mind, the Messiah who was to come and usher in God's kingdom wouldn't really be concerned about how religious anyone thought they were, no more than how many houses a person owned or how many servants they had. John tells us that what really matters is their relationship with what they possess and with those around them. And we should notice that he doesn't tell the crowd to go give everything they own away and become hermits in the desert. Instead, John says that if you have more than you need, then you should share it with those who have nothing. And if you have a position in society that gives you power or authority over someone else, treat that person with respect and don't take advantage of your situation. These are practical things to do. So the question that begs to be answered is, why now? Why did John the Baptist feel called to exhort the crowds with these instructions then? And why are we hearing these now, only two weeks before Christmas? The answer is simple. 
He was preparing the world to receive Jesus then, and he is preparing us to receive Jesus even today. Jesus' ministry of love and reconciliation turned everything the world thought was important upside down. He calls us to stop focusing only on ourselves and our unending quest for more power, more money, more stuff, and instead to shift our attention outward. In America in particular, as a society, we thrive in abundance. Unlike how many of our grandparents and great-grandparents lived, not wasting, not indulging, today many of us are conditioned to always be on the lookout for that next best thing, whether we need it or not. It's particularly evident right before Christmas, isn't it? We feel obligated to buy things we don't really need and may never actually even use, in the worst case, may not even be able to afford. And looking larger, this idea of overabundance can be expanded to further issues that are affecting our world, like food waste and disposable single-use plastics and even clothing waste. I was reading that the average American, it turns out, throws away 81 pounds of clothing every year, not donates throws away. Our communal disregard for others in our society and for those who will come after us sometimes seems to be at catastrophic levels. And it seems that only the coming of the Messiah might be able to straighten things out the way they're supposed to be. So yes, Christmas is coming, but it's not here yet. Thank God, yes, Jesus will come again, but he's not back yet. This holy and often overlooked season of Advent gives us that opportunity to slow down and to steep in expectation. Before we can celebrate the incarnation of God, we hear the voice of John the Baptist and the prophets who laid out exactly why God became incarnate in the first place. And while we all busily prepare for the, everything that Christmas entails, Advent offers us that chance to look within ourselves and prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. December the 25th will be here in two weeks. But there's no real reason to rush. Because the Christ who was, and who is, and who is to come, is not bound by our self-imposed limitations or expectations. And in fact, he calls us to be free of them also. And that is a very good reason to rejoice. <laughs>